Facebook, Twitter, 24-7 news, talk radio, citizen journalism, fake news, real news. Audiences are drowning in an overwhelming overload of information. Clearly, a guidepost is needed to identify what is trustworthy and a reliable source of both news and information. Season 2 of the Delaware Humanities Podcast, A Matter of Facts, delves into this topic. This year, examining more closely popular sources of news and information. The A Matter of Facts Podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News. Thanks for joining us on the A Matter of Facts podcast. I'm your host, Tom Byrne. Our second season of this podcast delves more deeply into a variety of popular sources of news and information. And in this second episode, we turn to a social media platform that was one of the first and has grown into one of the most used and pervasive, Facebook, which claims it now has 3 billion users worldwide. When Facebook first started, most probably would not have called it a news source and emphasized the social in social media, seeking to let people connect with family and friends online. But that has changed. Many users now consider it a way to stay informed, especially about politics, and a way to share the news and information they consider important in that realm. And that has created issues, concerns, and controversies about how Facebook is used and what kind of oversight should be provided for the content found there. To help us better understand Facebook and these issues, we are joined on the podcast by Dr. Lindsay Hoffman from the University of Delaware. She is an associate professor of communication there and the associate director of UD's Center for Political Communication, as well as director of the CPC's annual National Agenda Series. Her work emphasizes both the social and psychological influences on individual media uses and effects, including messages that encourage or discourage participation in political activities. Dr. Hoffman, thanks for being with us on the A Matter of Facts podcast. It's great to be with you. So as we look at the social media landscape, is there something that specifically drew you to Facebook as a platform to study specifically about political involvement and how people interact in in that part of it? Well, um, that's sort of where I started my social science research on social media. But, um, of course, the social media world has exploded since then. So um, one of the first studies I did looking at social media was, uh, uh, particularly in terms of news and political engagement, did look at Facebook because that was the primary platform uh, at the time. So uh, I believe the study was conducted in 2011. It was published in 2012. And it's uh, titled, cleverly, All the News That's Fit to Post, <laughs> a profile of news use on social networking sites. So, so back in 2011-2012, Facebook was kind of the dominant social media, media platform to begin with. Um, but we also saw news organizations like uh, the New York Times, the Associated Press, beginning to not just have a presence on Facebook, but hiring social media editors um, to take charge of their social media efforts. Uh, there were courses being offered, social media skills for journalists. So it was kind of like the zeitgeist in this 2009, 2010, 2011 period where um, F- Facebook was having a news kind of revolution. Um, but I think what makes Facebook interesting is, again, the fact that it's been around for such a long time, that it changes up its interface quite regularly. Uh, but what makes it, makes it difficult to, to 
study is, as we've talked about before, not everybody's on Facebook. Some young people have left that platform for Instagram, even though Instagram is part of the same company, um, or, or the new TikTok, which is kind of my new fascinating um, uh, <laughs> foray into social media. Uh, so for me, um, I've always just been interested in the, the connection between technology and political engagement. Um, you know, I came of age in the 90s, and when I went to college, uh, all of a sudden we had the internet, we had email, and um, it was a lot of fun, silly stuff, like way back when the internet started. Um, but then I also noticed, like, while I was getting my news there, you know, I was able to find new information. And because I kind of came of age in that era, I was, I just have become very fascinated by the link, the interconnectedness between um, what we do online uh, what we experience online and how that might translate offline. I'm interested because obviously Facebook having been around maybe the one of the longest of, of any of the social media platforms, I mean, it has a lot more to, to look at, particularly when you look at, at how it's evolved from being more socially oriented, the social part of social media, more to having this kind of big role in disseminating news and information, especially about politics. And I'm, I'm curious, has it followed a path similar to other social media or online engagement trends, or, or is it kind of its its own thing in the way it's evolved? I feel that it's kind of its own thing in the way that it has evolved. A lot of other platforms have been a sort of user-driven. Um, Twitter's a great example. Twitter was created as a short messaging service uh, for people to communicate inter-office and otherwise, um, just to send very quick messages that would be very little data to go across a network. Um, what people ended up doing with Twitter was very different. Uh, I, I don't know if you remember this. It's very, it very funny to think about, but in the first few years where Twitter was kind of getting popular, people were summarizing novels in 180 <laughs> characters. They were create, uh, creating recipes in 180 characters, um, or 140, now it's 280. But uh, people will use technology for things that it wasn't necessarily meant to be used for. Uh, that's one of the most fascinating things when I think about the relationship between technology and politics is that we have these engineers creating software, creating platforms that they don't necessarily think about on the other end, ethically or morally. What are people going to do with this product um, or what we produce here? The example I often give is Facebook Live. Um, when they rolled out Facebook Live, I talked to my colleagues and I said, where were the, the women and people of color and social scientists when they developed this? Didn't they think that, oh, maybe someone's going to use this to commit sexual assault or to document sexual assault or, or you know, murder somebody? I mean, it's like, who didn't think of that? And this is why I'm so fascinated and, and frankly terrified sometimes um, when I'm doing research on this topic, because so many of these platforms are created for one thing, but... Human beings are creative. They co-opt them for something else. And it could be as benign as a recipe, uh, or it could be as severe as, as documenting a crime. Um, so I think what Facebook, where Facebook differs is that Twitter and TikTok have been largely, the content is largely generated by the users, saying. Mm -hmm. and I think with Facebook, a lot of the components of the platform, a lot of the uh, characteristics of it tend to be more top-down driven. Um, in terms of how you, what you see, what comes up first, how it's organized, the algorithm that's, that presents information to you when you refresh your newsfeed, for example. Whereas with something like Twitter, that's a much more self-stylized environment. It's depending on who you follow, um, what kind of network you have created. So um, I do think that Facebook's different in that way. And I think also because of uh, the fact that they don't disclose a lot of their internal research about who uses Facebook for what and how often, um, there's a lot we don't know. 
And I was going to say, I mean, so, you know, and we'll talk a little bit more about the algorithms and all that other stuff in, in a couple of minutes. But I, I do want to ask, you, you mentioned it, it seems kind of more top down uh, in terms of, of what, what kind of drives its evolution. How much uh, does the demographics play a role in this? I mean, we, we commonly hear, you know, that, that the kids aren't on Facebook anymore. Uh, so it's more parents, it's more older people. Is that a factor that, that might have driven it more from the social realm to the, the news and political realm? Well, this is a great question, um, and I'm not sure it's something I can definitively answer because I think mm-hmm. it's changing. Okay. Um, I think particularly since uh, the election of Donald Trump, we've seen a very large group of people online um, engaging in conservative media use, using platforms like Reddit and other um, lesser-known platforms to communicate about politics, where we maybe didn't see that necessarily before. So I think the demographics are kind of constantly changing. I think that, honestly... As we begin to live our lives more and more online, and a pandemic is a great (laughs) real-world scenario to see what that looks like, um, we begin to see that our our actions online and offline become somewhat seamless. So um, we're going to see demographics that are going to look similar online and offline um, in terms of, of people using news. Is the kind of the move of Facebook more toward you know kind of news information politics and maybe less the social aspect that it that kind of was created to do? Is that driven a bit by the demographics? It, 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 it seems to be an older demographic. So maybe while they're interested in the social interaction with friends and family, that they're also perhaps more inclined than a younger audience to want to also be talking about and sharing news, information, politics. Sure. I think that's a traditional way of thinking about how um, different generations interact with news. I think that uh, particularly given what we've seen in the recent um, – uh, Trump rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, it appears that there's a very large group of young people, teenagers specifically, who were engaging with news content to influence um, that particular rally. Um, I think there's still not enough evidence to say exactly what happened. Right. Um, but we do know that, that teenagers were actively involved on TikTok, which is not a political platform by any stretch mm-hmm. until until this incident, um, where supposedly these teenagers were reserved all these seats for the rally and then... Uh, obviously it didn't go. There's something um, called incidental exposure. Uh, mm. So, for example, um, before I studied technology, I, I was very interested in studying uh, political satire and how people use political satire to engage with politics and whether it drives people to or away from uh, engaging in politics. So there's, there's an argument for a while that political satire, like The Daily Show, was making people cynical and making them check out. And one of the studies I did with uh, a colleague, uh, Danny Young, and some other of my colleagues, found that that the opposite was actually the case, that watching late-night programming made people feel more more confident that they could do something, that they could vote, that they could change the system. And that efficacy then led to increased participation in the offline world. So incidental exposure to news in a platform where you maybe didn't go there for news Mm -hmm. is really, really important. And so what we're seeing is news being infiltrated into all these different social media platforms um, even if we haven't necessarily opted into that. Um, now, in terms of Facebook in particular, they have over the years taken several different approaches to promoting news. Um, for a while, they wanted to seem like more of a news platform, mm-hmm. and people kind of weren't really into that, so they've backed away from that. Um, but I would say that you know, the more and more we get into this kind of seamless offline, online world, um, I think that the demographics are going to be similar. And um, what I can say in terms of young people you know, teaching them at the college level, 
um, I've noticed a huge shift since 2016 in terms of the number of students who are interested in politics. Um, and this is on a, what has been described as a relatively politically apathetic campus at the University of Delaware. Um, but they are really engaged. And our student voter rate increased, well, I think it was 27% in the from midterms of 2014 to 2018. So I think that there, it's, it's not necessarily just that demographics explain things in the same way over time. Mm-hmm. I think that we have to look at things, these periods. What I love about presidential elections is it's like a, a, a four-year experiment. Every four years, we get an experiment as to what is going on in this, in this country, what I study in particular. Um, and uh, I think what we're seeing is that young people are using the media, these media differently. Um, the TikTok example is a great one. Uh, but older people are, are obviously also engaging with it as well. So I think Facebook has actually stepped back from the news uh, segment a little bit because I think they had a bit of a backlash. Um, but uh, to me, what's most fascinating is seeing politics emerge on TikTok. I thought that was the last place I would ever see it. <laughs> well, one of the things you, you mentioned earlier was, you know, kind of that Facebook you know does look at this stuff and study this stuff and research this stuff, but we don't necessarily get to see a lot of what Facebook knows. So having said that, what do we know about, you know, where information on Facebook is coming from, who's posting it, why, you know, anything that could illuminate what we're seeing when we're, when we're on Facebook? So the, the big brands with lots of followers are, um, are you know, going to be seen by more people. Um, but the Facebook algorithm, uh, the most important part about it is that Facebook algorithm is how Facebook decides what users see and in what order every time they check their news feed. So I don't know about you, but I find myself, if I'm bored, I have Facebook open on my phone, I might hit refresh, and all of a sudden a new list of items pops up. Mm-hmm. Well, that new list of items isn't simply chosen randomly. It's using uh, survey data, using opinions from users, um, and it, it's, uh, it's basically the, the method with, by which they explain how you, get what, how you see what you see. So... Um, they prioritize content that is based on uh, the amount of time that users spend with that type of content. So if you are using more news, you may be at, end up seeing more news. Mm-hmm. We didn't always have it until 2007 that, um, that we had sort of a, a like button. Once you could start interacting with, and now, of course, we have like, love, care is the newest yes. uh, Facebook um, emotion that you can display. Those are all bits, bits of data that Facebook can look at um, as a whole and make decisions about what's what's keeping people on the site the longest. Because remember, all media, if, unless they're not pro, not for profit, um, are there to make money. So the more time your eyeballs are looking at that screen and seeing ads, the more money Facebook gets. So everything that this al- algorithm is created to do, and again, I don't know how it works. It's very secretive. They they take that into account and try try to make sure that you stay there as long as you can. They also prioritize. Um, posts that receive uh, comments, so people who, who have a lot of comments on their post. Um, but they, they, mod- they modify this all the time. Um, but at the bottom line is it's, it's looking at who a user typically interacts with, um, the type of media in the post, whether it's a video or a link, uh, and then the popularity of that post. And that basically de- designates how that post is going to be ranked in your newsfeed. And having said that, that I would assume has some kind of implications for people's political engagement on Facebook, that, that certain things kind of rise to the top uh, and it kind of it may 
color what you're seeing and therefore maybe what your perception of things are. Absolutely. Um, and so what we're seeing is people are kind of delving further and further into their own echo chambers uh, on social media. And um, it's very easy to unfollow someone on Facebook. So you might might feel like, oh, this would be kind of rude if I just didn't make them a friend anymore. Well, you know what? You can just, they don't know. You can just unfollow them. And while it it may seem counterintuitive, um, because liberals typically have a larger media diet, a more diverse media diet, than conservatives who are typically relying uh, a lot on Fox News, less on other sources. Um, it's actually kind of counterintuitive, but, but liberals are more likely to unfriend or unfollow people who share a different political view huh. than conservatives. So, um, so it's, it's nobody's, it, it, we are creating sort of our own little um, echo chambers where we're unlikely to see comp- comments from the other side. And what happened in 2016 that we're certainly going to see again is the prevalence of fake ads and mm-hmm. fake information spreading um, that some people are going to be see more likely than others. Very specifically, there was a targeted ad campaign um, that showed, uh, do you want to vote for Hillary Clinton? Text blah, blah, blah to this number to vote for Hillary Clinton. Well, of course, we all know that you can't text to vote. Um, <laughs> but either way, this was, tar- this, this was uh, an ad that was targeted specifically towards uh, African-Americans. And um, it, it's, it just demonstrates that there are a lot of ways to manipulate these media that the companies themselves, I honestly believe, are not prepared for, um, and that they're acting, in many cases, retroactively, rather than uh, you know, encountering the, the issue before it actually occurs. Which, which brings me to the question of oversight. I mean, what, what do you see as the, the proper role of a Facebook in, in overseeing the contents that, that are on its platform? And, and you know, how, how have they kind of handled some of these controversies that it has faced to, to date? Because they have faced a number of them. Absolutely. Well, and particularly regarding the president. Um, we've never had a president before uh, who was engaged in social media in the way that Donald Trump is. Um, in fact, it was only about a year before he was elected that uh, that Obama, less than a year, I think, that Obama got on Twitter, um, and he used Twitter as sort of an amplification of other communications, uh, whereas Donald Trump is using it to to announce things, to say things for the first time, rather than to amplify or reinforce. Suffice it to say, there have been several instances where people have called upon Twitter, have called upon Facebook to say, hey, what are you going to do about this post um, by the president of the United States? Because you have called this post inappropriate. You have removed people like Milo Yiannopoulos from this platform for saying sexist and, and uh, offensive things. Um, why not this account? So um, what's happened is that Twitter has, for the first time, kind of taken a more uh, more of a stand against the president, or at least the president's uh, content, it, than Facebook. So Facebook has been very much like, this is this. We just host, have the platform. You guys can say what you want, free speech, um, for the most part, unless it's you know, dangerous. Uh, so Twitter has come out and labeled some content as uh, misleading, um, such as a, a video that showed two little boys, uh, a black boy and a white boy, running down the street and um, labeling it as uh, somehow racist. Um, but it was a very misleading clip from an ad um, that was placed on a with a CNN uh, logo. Mm-hmm. So everything about it was very misleading. And Twitter called that out um, and put a w- sort of a warning label there. But here's the thing to keep in mind when it comes to 
these platforms in terms of officiating content. Um, yes, we in the United States have a First Amendment right for free, to free speech, but these platforms are not a public square. They're not a uh, public forum that's available to everyone. They are services that people can choose to download if they want, um, and their content isn't necessarily managed by the First Amendment. So these companies need to identify what are the rules of conduct, what, what are the values that we have that we're going to say, this is inconsistent with our values as a company. Um, you know, it reminds me of the same thing that's going on in all these conversations around uh, race and racism that's occurring in corporations, in newsrooms, I'm sure, mm-hmm. in, at universities. Like, oh, what, should we do something? What should we do? And I'm on several diversity committees, so this is what made me think of this. You look back at what are the university values? What are the organization's values? And are you upholding those values by sharing racist information or allowing sexist speech? So I feel that it's, it's the platform's uh, duty to identify what those values are and adhere by those rules. Um, it's not a free for all, you know. Th- this is th- this is their platform. Um, if people want, if people don't like uh, that content there, they can go to a different place um, to to post content that will allow them to do that. But Twitter and Facebook, being some of the most popular platforms there are, they need to do a better job. And another thing, just to to go off of this, um, mm-hmm. I taught an ethics and engineering class a few years ago. And I described uh, the Gamergate situation. And if you aren't familiar with this, you can Google it. But it was basically a sev- several years long uh, attack on women in the gaming industry, video games, um, which included things like doxing or releasing their private information, swatting, which is uh, falsely sending the SWAT team to your house, um, rape threats, death threats, you name it. And I remember talking to this group of engineers and saying, what could, be, what could you have done if you're sitting around the table at Twitter, because um, that's primarily where the, uh, the offensive behavior was coming from, what could you have done before that might have prevented this? And what surprised me is, I, I said, what, what, should this, what should happen? What surprised me is that the, the engineer that raised uh, his or her hand said, well, they should just go to a different platform. And they don't think about the fact that, well, that other platform can be subject to the same problems. Right. You know, it's not until we address these things on the front end and until uh, technology providers are not largely white men living in Silicon Valley um, and who uh, are looking to philosophers, social scientists, and thinking about these things beforehand. If As long as we don't have that, we're just, they're always going to be retroactively Oh, label this as false. Label this as you know misleading, but it's still there. You know, like right. it's 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 kind of baffling to me um, that that they don't have more responsibility over their content. That they don't take more, I guess, I don't ownership. Know yeah, <laughs> ownership. I think that's a good word. They take some ownership. <laughs> this is your platform. So, I mean, having discussed all this, I mean, in your opinion, you know, what are, what are the benefits versus the risks of of using Facebook as a as a news source? In the very first early days of the coronavirus, there's a lot of controversial information going around, like, oh, it's not really a virus, or, oh, it was started with, with a Chinese person eating a bat or something like that. There's a lot of um, misinformation being flown around. And I saw some of my own intelligent friends and family sharing what was clearly uh, propaganda or misinformation. And 
the one thing I can say is it's the very first thing you should do if you see something like that, that you're like, wait, is that, is that right? Look at the source. That's the easiest thing you can do. If it's a source you don't recognize or it's something called like, called, like Occupied Democrat, mm-hmm. um, that's not a news source. Look for the news source and ask the person who's posted it, where, did, where is this in the news? I see this on this website, but I don't know anything about this group. Um, I want to see this in the news. So that's the number one thing. And I would say it's also important to engage with your friends and family and say, you know, I haven't heard this anywhere else. Where did you find this? Um, because over time, as we've seen the coronavirus become more prevalent and uh, prolific, uh, some of those people are no longer posting things like that because they realize that maybe that they were in, in the wrong. So I think in general, um, Facebook is, is not a good way to get your news. Uh, because of the algorithm, because uh, you are already likely in an echo chamber with people who share your similar beliefs. Um, Twitter, largely the same, although with Twitter, I feel like it's a lot easier to follow people from all different uh, types. So Facebook, you're kind of following, for the most part, people that you know. Um, On Twitter, you can engage with strangers. You can engage with people you don't know. You can engage with people who don't agree with you. And that is, as far as I'm concerned, the benefit of Twitter over Facebook, because I can choose to follow both very conservative opinion writers and liberal conserv- uh, liberal opinion writers, um, conservative politicians and liberal politicians. And you can begin to see how the dialogue um, doesn't often overlap when you start following both of those sources. And that just, I think that offers a richer understanding of what's happening in the world. Does it make people a little angry sometimes to hear the other side? Yeah, probably. <laughs> but I've trained myself to do this over time to just kind of look at the information and not try not immediately feel emotional about it. And I think that's hard to do, particularly when things are so uncertain right now. But that's another piece of advice is like if it's making you feel really emotional, um, angry or scared or upset, like double check yourself, because that's that might be you reacting to something that is is misinformation or maybe is misrepresented or is not from a credible source. And, uh, you know, we have all of these implicit biases in our brains. Um, Psychology has put together a list of, there's thousands of things that we do um, that when we process information, we we can't take in all the information that we see all the time. Um, When you're looking at Facebook, you aren't looking at every single thing that's happening at the same time. So we use certain cues. We look to people that we trust. We look to... Um, information that's novel or interesting. We look to graphics. Um, so what we have to acknowledge is that we are all processing information in a biased way. Do I mean politically biased? No, but I mean biased towards quickly processing information and making sense of it. So if we slow that process down a little bit and say, okay, am I reacting to this because I want it to be true? Or am I reacting to this because I want it to be false? Um, you know, Take a step back and, and observe this from a more scholarly perspective or an, you know, a, a bird's eye view and say, why am I reacting to this this way? Um, could it have something to do with my opinions about it? And maybe before commenting, before sharing, before uh, hitting the like button or that care button, um, close the phone, close the laptop, step away for a little while and, uh, you know, go engage with your family that you're stuck with in this pandemic. <laughs> How about in the future? What is Facebook's future uh, as as a news information source source of political engagement? Oh, it's really hard to predict. Um, I think that w- right now we are in such a period of 
complete political polarization that began in the 90s with uh, when we had more and more sources to turn to for news. Um, 95 or 96, I believe, was the beginning of both Fox and MSNBC. Uh, there's a reason we've seen an increase in polarization between Republicans, Democrats, and liberals and conservatives over the last 25, 30 years. And it has a lot to do with the media that we are consuming. We are consistently falling into smaller and smaller worldviews um, and not talking to people who disagree with us. And uh, that obviously came to a very clear place in 2016 um, when, you know, even some people, some of, the, some of the issues regarding political polling in 2016, a lot of people said, how did they get it wrong? Well, some people were probably unlikely to share who they were voting for because they were they didn't want to share maybe that they're a white woman voting for or a black person voting for Donald Trump. Um, so there, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that the polling could have gone wrong, but but there are people are sort of have reached a place where they're unwilling and perhaps unable to actually have conversations across uh, different partisan lines. And as long as that's the case in this country, which it certainly is at its height right now, I don't see social media providing any kind of panacea to that. Um, if people take the approach to say, all right, you know what? I'm tired of the polarization. I'm tired of the arguing. I'm going to take it upon myself to follow a diversity of viewpoints so that I can see what people on the other side are saying, so I can understand their arguments. If nothing else, you'll have a better understanding the next time you get into a conversation about why they're defending this particular issue or person. Um, so it's, it's about gaining knowledge about other people, what other people think. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're all, we all want the same thing. We would like a stable country. We would like processes and resources to be distributed fairly uh, to people no matter of their color or, or race. Um, and we can and have worked together in the past to do that. Um, this country is an amazing experiment. I know it's kind of a cliche to say, but it truly is. And we've been through a lot of tumultuous times. And I think if we as individuals and these technology companies' uh, owners take some responsibility and say, you know what, some of this is on me. I'm, I can't keep blaming Twitter for posting Donald Trump's things. I need to follow some – I need to follow Donald Trump and I need to follow people who follow him. Um, you know, I think until we can get to a place of at least being comfortable – well, at least being sort of – cognizant if not comfortable of content on the other side we're never going to be able to communicate with each other and we like to end this podcast by asking each of our guests so uh, where do you like to get your news on a daily basis what are your favorite or go-to news sources oh that's a great question what i tell my students is um i say diversify your portfolio <laughs> so uh i get news from the New York Times and the Washington Post are two of the ones that I rely on the most. Uh, the Wall Street Journal is also a very good source. I get the News Journal for uh, local news. Um, and what I also do on Twitter and, and uh, social media, or when I'm looking for news about a particular story, is I look to international sources. I look to the BBC. I look to Al Jazeera. Um, I look to, uh, you know, quite a few others that I can't think of off the top of my head, but um, I make sure that I'm looking at things from an international perspective too, because we tend to feel so, like, think we're so isolated from the world. Um, but particularly right now, as, as the U S has handled the pandemic and uh, so social justice issues um, differently than other countries have, it's really always fascinating to look at, well, how do they view us and what, how are they interpreting what's going on in our country? So 
the most important thing is just diversifying your portfolio. The other thing I've been doing is, um, you know, the kids these days, <laughs> they're, they're creative. They're using social media in very creative ways. And one of my speakers uh, a couple years ago in my speaker series was a teenager named Gabe Fleischer. And he does a daily a political um, newsletter called Wake Up to Politics. Started it when he was, uh, I think he was 11 years old. <laughs> and he has over 50,000 followers, uh, subscribers. And um, he does a really great nonpartisan just breakdown of the news for the day. So, um, you know, find people that you enjoy reading, uh, you know, people that you, fo- that you find yourself going, oh, that was a really interesting article. Look who wrote it and follow that person on, on Twitter um, or other uh, social media. And just, again, diversify your portfolio as much as you can to get a diversity of viewpoints. Dr. Lindsay Hoffman, Associate Professor of Communication at the University of Delaware, Associate Director of UD's Center for Political Communication and Director of the CPC's annual National Agenda Series. Thank you so much for joining us on the A Matter of Facts podcast. Thank you. It's fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of the A Matter of Facts podcast. The A Matter of Facts podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state program of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News.